has been said that the antidote to um, bigotry is travel, mm. going to places, and 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 hopefully not visiting just as an outsider, but. I'm Matt Mack, and this is Bloody Mavericks. This is part two. I want to hear your story. I want to hear, uh, because you, you said about your childhood struggles. Have uh, I still don't know if you've came, you've been adopted. Mm-hmm. Um, have you came from Asia as a child, or have you been been adopted over here ah yeah i was uh, i was born here hmm. no knowledge uh, much of uh, my birth parents uh, i only know my ancestry and what it's supposed to be mm-hmm. um and like i said i was adopted by uh, chinese parents uh, they are from mainland china they left china to escape communism as mm-hmm. many chinese did uh, and they ended up in they ended up in Nova Scotia and Halifax. Um, my parents had an arranged marriage. Interestingly enough, my mother used to always threaten me uh, when I was like eight, nine, ten years old uh, with you know getting a wife for me. It's, <laughs> it's pretty funny. Um, I, at that age, I'm kind of like, but I, do I want a wife? I don't know. It's like, no, 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 you want one. We'll get you one. Don't worry when it's time. Uh, anyhow, they had an arranged marriage, and uh, but my father uh, was unable to uh, sire children, mm-hmm. and I guess they still wanted to have them anyways, you know. So they adopted me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so uh, oh, uh, now I was born here. I was actually born in Toronto. Uh, okay, they adopted me and and uh, then took me to where mm-hmm. they live, which was in Halifax, yeah. and so I spent most of my formative years uh, growing up on the east coast of Canada. Um, and as soon as I was old enough, uh, I escaped mm-hmm. uh, because I think, as I already alluded to earlier, it wasn't necessarily the most welcoming place yeah. for um, people of color. Uh, that's a historic fact. How um, old were you when you moved? Or That's a good question. I, I You got me. I don't actually late 20 mid 20s mm-hmm. yeah yeah mid 20s i think uh i could i wanted to leave a bit earlier and i i, I didn't i just procrastinated doing it uh, but eventually i did and then when i got here i just uh, it was eye-opening because it was so much better in a way because i didn't stand out mm-hmm like that's all I wanted growing up uh, was to just not stand out, which is probably funny considering how I'm dressed right now. Um, you know, I, 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 I'm much more flamboyant now than probably I ever have been at any other time in my life. Um, I guess I don't mind standing out now, but I, I didn't want to then because I attracted a lot of attention that I didn't want in the first place just by being the wrong color. Hmm. Uh, and so I didn't want to be noticed. Uh, you know, there and and, but when I came here, you kind of get lost in the larger population in some ways. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that I noticed though was the uh, multi-ethnic sort of cultural melting pot that Toronto is. This is a really wonderful thing, by the way. You know, it's like you, 
there's a lot of cities you can go to around the world where it just isn't like this. You know, you, you, you go to a big city in China and it's all yellow people with black hair. And, you know, if you go to a big city in India and it's all going to be brown people with black hair, you mm. know, pretty much. Right. And uh, so uh, I think it's really neat to live in a place where there's such an uh, such an ethnic mix. I, I, I'm not sure what the demographic is for the entire GTA, but I know a few years ago that Scarborough, um, you know, um, that what is considered minorities in the rest of Canada are actually the majority populations, which are Asian and Southeast Asian, are yeah. the number one uh, mm. represented uh, people in Scarborough. Uh, here's the interesting thing, though, what I didn't know was and I had looked this up recently. I was trying to find out how many what the percentage of Chinese people there are in Canada. Mm -hmm. um, and I found out by accident that the largest um, pop, like the Asian population, when I say Asian, though, however, I do. It's uh, East Asian, South Asian, Southeast yep. Asian, West Asian, which mm -hmm. I, uh, you know, uh, make up just over 20 percent of the Canadian population. It's actually mm -hmm. shockingly large number of, yep. uh, of people. Um, although the Chinese population, I think, is about 5.4 percent. Oh, no, 4.6 percent, actually. Mm -hmm. And the Chinese population in um, not Chinese, actually, the API population, so Asian Pacific Islander population in the United States is about 6 percent. Mm. Um, why do I bother wanting to know this? It's simply because when I was talking about growing up and you know not seeing representation of people that look like me, well, the question is, why would you, depending on how small that population is, mm -hmm. right? Um, in 2021, a statistic came out that said that over a period of 13 years that they tracked, only 3.4% of leading act, leading men, I think, leading men or leading actors were um, API. Mm -hmm. With one third of those roles going to Dwayne Johnson. <laughs> I thought it was funny. I, it, it, it entertained me. Um, so what they're saying is basically they're underperforming in terms of representation. If mm -hmm. you have 6% of the population is, is API, but only 3.4%. Yeah, are, are visible and you know then they could be doing better I guess right uh, and not to be American centric about it but you know I, I came up in the film industry here and I and I one of the difficulties I had was not much opportunity uh, for uh, to have any roles access to whether it be acting or whether it be stunting and the majority of the Canadian film industry is a service industry to the American film industry, That's right? True. So so it's not how many Canadians are Chinese mm -hmm. to determine how much work there is for someone that looks like me or, or API, right? It's how many Americans are API because that is really what drives, you know, the industry. Yeah, yeah. the industry, right? So if there's if there's a high percentage, like, now in the U.S., um, the number one ethnic minority is Hispanic. That's right. It has overtaken mm -hmm. uh, African American. I think it's like eighteen percent to sixteen percent. 
uh, and it shows. It shows in media. It shows in sports. It shows. It shows everywhere because because the people who, like you say, you have to go where the money goes. Like people who make money, they realize well, we have to service this population, oh, yes. right? It's a fifth of fifth of the population. That's right? right. So you know, and that's you know, when I started in the industry, it was thirty years ago. Mm-hmm. I don't even know what the statistics are. Um, for API in Canada, but again, more importantly, API in uh, in America, but it, quite low, I'm sure. So I didn't unreasonably expect that I should see a lot more faces like mine, mm-hmm. but it still didn't change the fact that it was difficult to survive in the industry because they had no use for people that looked the way I do. Uh, that was difficult, yeah. So, uh, and you asked, you know, the story, but I, grew up there it was very difficult i came here pretty much as soon as i could and then life got better Uh, i wanted to work in film that came from being a kid and you know being picked on and whatever and not seeing any representation and but then seeing bruce lee in the movies and jet lee later Mm -hmm. on you know and i'm like oh i want to be like that guy um and that informed wanting to do martial arts much to the chagrin of my parents because they did not approve of that they wanted me to be a doctor <laughs> there are only three uh legitimate professions to um asian or south asian parents, parents which is you can be a doctor a lawyer and i don't know why but an architect <laughs> or an engineer i guess i'm mm-hmm. not sure why those ones are the same as but anyhow doctor is always number one uh, yeah, that's what my parents wanted. So they didn't want me doing martial arts. Uh, and I also wanted to do martial arts and film, and they didn't want me doing that either. So it took years uh, of working. And, and it was, it was, it was, it was part time. Like I was, I was very lucky to stumble my way into working in film. It was not a linear path. I didn't have a plan. Mm-hmm. I just moved to a bigger city than the smaller city I was in. I went, I'd like to do that, but I'm not sure where I should go. And I probably should have gone to L.A. really, like back when it was not hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't. And I stayed here, but somehow I managed to stumble into working in film. And that, by the way, was another irony. Was that? Because... For, uh, for several reasons I you know I always appreciate irony in life because you know it's a fascinating thing and there's a lot of it in my life I think there's a lot of it in everybody's lives in mm-hmm. a way right if you look for it yeah um, but you know I I, I I grew up being excluded or singled out or you know wh- what have you for 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 being the, the color that I am. And then I entered the only industry in the country where it is legal to select or not select me because of the color that I am. Think about that. It's a human rights violation. There's no other job where I can say, hey, Matt, I want someone white skin like you to come work for me. You can't say that out loud. I mean, you might think that, but you can't say that. Right. Or I'm not letting you work because of that. Right. Or in my case, you know, for how I look. But you can definitely say that, of course. The exclusion is, you know, like film and television. You're you're casting. It's casting. You're allowed to do that. And so I did get into the industry. And I got in because of of my appearance, Mm -hmm. right, on a show 
uh, my first union credit, I so I did non-union stuff. I did extra work and, and, and whatever what, whatever I could do, you know, waiting for to be able to get enough credits to get into the union or to get a union credit at all. And the, my first union credit was for a TV series called Kung Fu The Legend Continues, <laughs> right? So Kung Fu The Legend Continues, for those people I don't know uh, who knows it, it's, it's quite a long time ago now because it's 1993 was, I think, when it first aired. So they were shooting in 1992. That's when I got my first credit. And that was 20 years after the original series uh, aired in the U.S. Uh, uh, starring David Carradine, mm. who plays a Shaolin monk, displaced Shaolin monk living in the American West in the 1800s. Except that that concept was pitched to Warner Brothers by Bruce Lee when he was alive around mm. 1969. Uh, he had approached Warner Brothers with an idea of a Shaolin monk traveling uh, in the West uh, and, you know, like getting into situations and, and what have you and having to use martial arts to 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 get out of it. Get out. Right. Uh, and it is known uh, the, the the Lee family, by the way, they do uh, contest that, you know, they stole his idea. Mm. Uh, other people have given evidence to say some other writers had come up with it. Um, I don't know where they got that idea from because Bruce was pitching that yeah. idea to Warner Brothers and it was mm. Warner Brothers who later on developed it. And it is known, David Carradine admits that Bruce Lee was passed over for the role. Mm. Uh, legend has it that an executive at Warner Brothers said, well, you, this is 1960, well, 1971, I guess, when they started to do it, but said, you, you, you can't make a star out of a five foot six Chinese man, apparently is what was said. So Bruce wow. was passed over and the role of a Shaolin monk was given to a white man who had no Chinese in him whatsoever. Uh, although in the storyline, Kwai Chang Kane is half Chinese. And, you know, so he, uh, David talks about it and he basically goes, well, I, you know, he, he wasn't going to put on a Chinese accent or anything like that. What he, he did it by um, talking slowly like this. That was basically how he affected the, you know, what he thought was the presence or persona of a, of a Shaolin monk. Uh, and then a lot of the aphorisms, uh, you know, and expressions that he used were basically taken from translations of the Tao Te King. So uh, basically a Taoist uh, literature. Right? So that's how that's how it was done. Again, so irony. There wasn't any work for people like me that look like me, but Kung Fu the Legend continues uh, shot in Toronto. Mm. Kwai Chang Kane, the character, lives in Chinatown. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the drama and work that happened around the storylines, in and out, you know, he had assailants, he had people he had to fight and so on. You know, they needed to be uh, Asian. because uh, So for a while, like they had like people dressed up as ninjas and they were Caucasian performers and they would just kind of cover their faces yes. and they would pretend mm. that they were Asian, you know, which is a thing that happens. Mm. So... Um, uh, but they they desperately needed uh, Asian stunt performers, so there was a there was an influx at that time. There was a permitting, as they call it, or hiring a bunch of Asian people, and so I managed to get in because of that, because they had a desperate need to have actual Asian people for you know to fight him or his uh, the, his son. Um, uh, 
named Peter in the in the story. So that's how I, I got in. So again, you know, coming from where I came from, struggling to get into the industry, getting onto a show that where they hired a white person to play an Asian person as my first credit, right? Um, I got my other two credits, I think, on the same show on subsequent episodes playing different characters because, again, that's how small the pool was mm -hmm. of Asian performers. So they, I guess, you know, nowadays they tend not to do stuff like that. Um, but so I did get repeated, but as different characters. And then that gave me all the credits I needed to be in the union. And I thought, OK, well, I'm in now. I've made it. You know, uh, what I didn't know was you know how few and far between the work would be mm. so uh my specialty is martial arts is fighting and at the time that i got in i was a, i was also a competitive bodybuilder that was very large um but i could still you know kick over my head and drop into the splits and so mm -hmm. I, I was still i was very mobile and i was especially very mobile for a person of that size uh, and and yet, you know, there didn't seem to be a use for me. It was very much a part time job. And I think that's what my parents feared, too, because they, they knew that I was only working like a couple of days a year. I always had uh, two or three other jobs uh, that I was doing, uh, like working in the nightclub industry, which I did for far too long, mm. uh, except that it was easy. And it left my days free to go to auditions and, and also, you know, it's it's a flexible job. If you if you book a gig, yeah. you, you can take a few nights off. Somebody else can can take your place. Right. So I, I stayed I, I stayed in the nightclub industry for far too long hmm. uh, as a support, really, for doing what I wanted to do, which was working in in film. And that went on for a long time. I was like 10 years of really being a part-time uh performer i did i did i call myself a stunt stunt man I, I i identified as a man at that point uh, but did i call myself a stunt man i sure did because it sounds cool mm. you know you go to a cocktail party what do you do i'm a stunt man oh wow cool everybody wants to hear what you do right mm -hmm. and so I, I i couldn't help uh i couldn't help but uh you know latch on to the social cachet of that um but i mean to call myself professional stunt performer or whatever it's a bit of a stretch because if you're you know it's you're just working like two or three days a year mm. it's really a it's a hobby you know when did it come to fruition where you basically came to the point where yeah i'm it's becoming my full on full-time passion and role and and job that you know came uh, was born of necessity I, I i had some life things happen to me um i had uh, some some legal problems too because as that i worked in the door and uh, i had uh, i would get myself into trouble occasionally um uh, with the physicality of the job there's nobody ever tells you right it's like it's all it's all fun and games uh, when you're doing that and you're turfing people out of the club yeah. and whatever there was a time by the way there was a heyday of nightclubs as they became such to be known like you know before my time we're talking like you know 70s discos and stuff like that where where you know bouncers i mean they got that name for a reason right they literally mm. bounce people out on their heads yeah. you know when they weren't wanted anymore and you could get away with it nobody did anything like if you threw somebody out 
you know, uh, roughly and they went to the police, police would arrest them for being publicly drunk. You know, like, hey, yeah. why'd, you, why'd you get yourself thrown out? Yeah, come here, You're, you know. Um, that slowly changed. And after a while, it's like if you put your hands on somebody, even though, and this is how property law works, is that if you are uh, working as an agent of the property owner, you have the right to act on behalf of the property owner and ask someone to leave. And if they don't want to leave, then you have the right to use necessary reasonable force to remove that person if mm. you cannot get the police there in time. Sorry to bore everybody with law. Um, but that doesn't mean that that person can't charge you. Yeah. Right. Mm. And if you do it week after week, year after year for enough years, you're going to have a lot of charges, you yeah. know, and things yeah. like that. And eventually that's going to, yeah, that's going to catch up to you. That's going to catch up to you. So, uh, you know, um, but out of necessity, it's, it's like I just, I just needed, I needed money to live. I needed money to deal with some of those things. Um, and, I started uh, working as an aerial rigger, a stunt rigger, which is behind the camera now, right? I always had an interest, to be very honest. I was always very curious about how that aspect of the industry was done. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm just curious about things and the engineering behind it. You know, when you're riding those things and somebody has got you tied to a line and they're ratcheting you at like, you know, 60 miles an hour out of a shot. Yeah. It's like, how exactly does that work? And how safe is it, by the way? I'm curious, you know, <laughs> uh, and I wanted to find out and I did. So I, I started at the very lowest level that you could, which is just, you know, somebody humping mats, like dragging mats on the set and mm -hmm. on and off set and cleaning them. And, you know, uh, I started uh, with doing that and then slowly but surely you know assimilating uh the skills that is required for for higher level uh aerial work uh you know using using aerial rigging and so on and that allowed for much more steady work because you would get on you get on to a movie and if it's a stunty movie then you you know you might have several weeks of work which would be mm. the first time in my career you know, of over a decade at that point where I actually, it wasn't just come in, get shot, fall down, go home, wait six months for the next thing, you know? Mm. Well, wait six months for the next Asian gang movie. <laughs> now, now it was yeah long, long process, project in a way. Exactly. But yeah, to just to touch on that point, that was always what I was praying for. I was like, oh my God, when's the next Asian gang movie, you know? Because... <laughs> uh, uh, there was a period of time, I think, in the 90s, because that's, again, when I started, you know, where uh, there was like, uh, there was a but like there was Black Rain, there was a, there was a Mickey Rourke movie, um, Year of the Dragon, I think mm -hmm. it was something like that. There was a bunch of movies where there was this kind of like a obsession with sort of Asian culture thing and Yakuza and triads, and, right. you know, whenever there's a Yakuza and triads, <laughs> I was working. Didn't matter. They didn't care if I was Japanese or not, whatever. It's like if there's Asian gangs, I was working. So I was always happy to hear when one of those movies would come to town. But it was a it was a phase. It was a period. It was, I think it was about like, uh, you know, eight to ten years mm -hmm. when that was kind of popular. And then it went away as, as they do with things come in and out of fashion, vogue, yeah. out of fashion. Uh, but yes, moving behind the camera, uh, there was more work to be found. And then... Uh, eventually, I did find my way to um, building fights for mm -hmm. people. Usually, as a performer, I would get hired as a performer. Like, well, you do martial arts here, you know, help with this fight, and you would do it. It would be uncredited. 
but it started giving me the experience and the understanding and I knew to I knew to pursue that mm-hmm. um, and then my my break I guess if you want to call it a break was to be hired on to the TV series Nikita by the stunt coordinator who was someone I knew and who was a friend and uh, they had they had changed the team is like do you want to do you want to come try out for this uh, and it, at the time it was the only uh, so this was for the position of fight coordinator uh, the name is probably self-explanatory that you're the person who designs fight work mm-hmm. uh, so it's a specialized position under the stunt coordinator right um, a lot of shows didn't have that many times like historically the stunt coordinators would kind of they would build the fights too mm-hmm. right they might do the some of the rigging they might do some of the fighting or whatever but as shows got bigger especially television as they more tried to emulate what we we're doing in film you needed bigger and bigger action scenes uh it, it would either be beyond the ability of that particular stunt coordinator because that's not their specialty maybe that style of martial art or it's simply because the stunt coordinator uh, has the purview of all action on the show so we're talking you know cars and fire and ratchets and stunts right. and you know uh, it, it's a lot to do and you don't have the time to spend it in a rehearsal room you know building and figuring out fights and training actors so this this position became more and more common mm. and so i was hired on to uh nikita uh, as a full-time fight coordinator and that was also rare at that time because most shows just if they needed a fight coordinator, they would be brought in for a specific piece of work, and then mm-hmm. that would be it. The contract would be over, much like stunt performing. Uh, but in this case, it was it was you know run of show, so for the entire season, and then you know I ended up doing four seasons of it, uh, and doing that, and then it is there because as the fight coordinator what was starting to be expected was that you would shoot a demo Mm. of the fight to show to the director and the producers right they need to know and i remember in my interview for that show the show the not the showrunner but the, the line producer said to me so um you know, we, we like you to be able to do previs. That's the term for it. Uh, it's from American uh, filmmaking. Previs uh, as an abbreviation for previsualization. Hmm. Uh, we, we, we like to be able to see that. Uh, you know, our uh, our old uh, original FICO that was here briefly or whatever, they used to do that. Can you do that? I, hmm. talked, I talked to you about this when you were setting up the cameras. And, I, and I'm like, yeah, sure, I can do that. I didn't know how to do that. <laughs> You know, I knew I knew martial arts. I knew I I knew I had a plan for how I wanted to approach creating action for the show, fight action specifically. The stunt coordinator creates the action, but I knew how I wanted to approach that. I knew how I wanted. I had ideas how I wanted to work with the actors already, even before I stepped into that interview. But when he said, you know, you you you're cool with like you know making making the movie before you know shooting a little movie, right? I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure, I am. Uh, and then I left and then I, I heard that I got the job because I was the only person being put forward to it, which I was very appreciative of uh, for the stunt coordinator for doing that. But then I was in panic mode because like I I was a photographer, by the way, I'd been doing photography since I was in my teens. So I understood framing, mm-hmm. but I didn't understand movement in the frame because I shot stills. Yeah. And I also didn't understand camera movement. Mm-hmm. because when you're shooting stills you don't move the camera that's right you try to hold the camera still 
Uh, and it showed in terms of my you know, early work, I would definitely have people moving in front of the camera, but the camera really didn't move because uh, I, I didn't know any better. Uh, and, and I think I did make an access mistake in my very first previous, because that was my assignment. He says, okay, you, you go, and I, here's a description of a scene. I want you to go shoot that. I want you to edit it. I want you to bring it back to me and show it to me. Mm. So I went and I you know, called up the a handful of uh, the stunt friends that I had, and I'm like, hey, I, I need you guys to help me with this, because I've been asked to do this, and I will hopefully pay you back in... Um, work. I'll try to, you know, get you get you performing days. But I can't promise you anything because I don't have that power to hire. That's the stunt coordinator. But I will mm -hmm. I will work towards it if you will, please help. And so I did get people to come out and I did film it and I did bring it back to that person. And, and you know the 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 line producer goes, okay, all right, yeah, this is very good. You got it. <laughs> uh, and that was the beginning. But that was I didn't know. That was early of the bug before I caught, I caught the bug. So I, I just never wanted to be a director. I always wanted to be the person fighting on camera. That's what I watched when I was a little kid. That's what I watched Bruce Lee doing and Jet Li doing and you know, and that's what I wanted to do, mm. you know. Uh, and sadly, I never, it never happened for me. Like I couldn't be more proud by the way of, uh, of uh, Simu. Simu Liu, because uh, it's just like he, 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 you know, it's amazing that he's done it. Uh, kind of everything I ever dreamed about that mm. he's, he's actually gotten there. So I'm, I'm very proud and very happy for him, you know, and a little sad it didn't happen for me. But not that sad, not that sad, because again, here I am, I'm making these movies and, you know, previs for the show and I'm working on it multiple seasons. And then at what point, at some point, I think it was season three. I had built uh, this fight scene uh, for a director and it showed it to him. By that time, my skills were, were, were much more polished. And I, I had a, I, I, I look at it now, I still have that film and you know, so many things I could do better, of course, mm -hmm. but it was early on. And he had asked me after watching it, he goes, so what, 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 what do you want to do? Uh, like, what do you mean what I want? Well, what, do you, what ultimately would you like to do? I'm like, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, maybe I'd like to direct, actually, at some point. And he goes, well, he goes, I, um, I, I, I had this discussion, you know, with, uh, with, with uh, and I'm trying to remember the name, a famous director uh, that he had spoken to. And that director had said to him when he was a production assistant, he had asked him, what do you want to do? He goes, well, I think I want to be a director. Because well, then you need to start calling yourself a director. So he said to me, well, then you need to start calling yourself a director. I was like, there's no freaking way I'm going to do that. No, no, I'm not going to do that, right? Uh, and then I think it was the next, I think it was that lunch we were talking. And then after lunch, we were coming back to the fight scene that I had built for him, that I had shown him the previous. And he goes, okay, we're going to do the talking stuff. And then you have the floor. You're directing the, the fight action. And, you know, scared the crap out of me. But then in my head, I'm like, well, I don't know what I should be scared about because I actually have already done this. I've already rehearsed it. I've already shot it. I'm just going to do it again. Mm. Except now I'm not holding the camera. It's the camera ops are going to be That's holding right. the camera. I, nothing else is really actually different. And so that would be the first time that I took the floor. Uh, and then that was just absolutely intoxicating. <laughs> 
I knew I needed to do a lot more of it. I didn't know how necessarily, but I knew that probably pursuing in the same path. So I, from fight coordinator, I did more of it uh, on several other shows. Uh, then eventually I realized, well, not every show needs a fight coordinator. Mm-hmm. Not every show that has action, excuse me, needs a fight coordinator. But every show that has action requires a stunt coordinator. And as a fight coordinator, you're also waiting for a stunt coordinator to hire you. They may not hire you. They may hire somebody else that they prefer. So the only way to get past that was to become a next level up. The next level. A stunt coordinator, also something I never wanted to be. Hmm. Uh, that was difficult. That, that took uh, also you know, a few years because uh, obviously I didn't have a resume for that. And you're up against all these people who, you know, local and otherwise uh, who have massive resumes and there was no way I could compete so I knew I had to come at it from a different way I couldn't do it by resume size I don't have hundreds of credits Uh, and so I approached it from I tried to pitch it in terms of an artistic side specifically I pitched it in terms of story Mm. Uh, meaning that the action should continue to tell the story. I mean, this is, sounds obvious enough, but I think that many have noticed, maybe perhaps you have noticed, that especially in the action genres, that sometimes there is storytelling. An action for action. And then there's a break, and then we do some action, and then we go back to the storytelling. And mm-hmm. that, that always didn't sit right with me. I didn't like it. and. and that's the reason why, I mean, there's a reason why action movies don't typically win Academy Awards, right? They're not taken seriously. They're, they're eye candy. They're fun. They can be very entertaining. They can be very popular. They can be very profitable. Mm. Um, but they aren't taken seriously. Not usually. But when you can continue the storytelling, because action is just physical storytelling, mm. and uh, and people have heard me on my other interviews, I will say it again, that fighting is just nonverbal dialogue, Mm. right? So what are the characters saying to each other by what they are doing? Punches and kicks are words, combinations are phrases, Mm -hmm. paragraphs, pauses are time to reflect on what was said and what your response is going to be, right? And so I would go into my meetings, my interviews rather, and you know, I would pitch that. I would pitch a story. I would say I'm interested in nonverbal storytelling. At first, I remember one incident I went in, uh, or a situation I went in to interview, and they're like, okay, yeah, but uh, do you know how to make a schedule or do you know how to make a budget? And it's like, in my head, and this is the autistic part of me, I'm like, uh, duh. <laughs> of course I fucking know how to make a budget. I wouldn't come in here if I didn't. I just didn't think that it's a very exciting thing to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember reading about Macintosh, which then later on became Apple, and they talked about the rise of Apple and how it happened because PC would always, uh, you know, like IBM and other Dell and other companies that make it, they want to talk about, oh, but our this is the speed of our processor and, and this is this is how much RAM we have, and you know, they right? right technology which works for 
technical minded people. Yeah. Right. But Apple is like, hey, look, remember the iMac? It was like, look at our look at the cool colors and these things would suit your life. And then they made things integrated where you have your your iPod, you know, your music, which then integrates with your computer and then now integrates with your Seamless. phone, that seamlessness. Right. They attacked it from a completely different way mm. and look where it got them. Right. And so when I was trying to break into coordinating, I was trying to appeal in this way. Mm. There's not much of a competition to say who does the best budgets. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like a, you know, it's all the same thing now. There used to be a time, by the way, when stunt coordinators, they had they had this book. Mm. The coveted book. It was the performer book. It was hard to get because there wasn't internet yet. So somehow you had to know who to call. Oh, I have a seamer. There's a motorcycle chase. And then the guy jumps off a bike and then this fight happens. All right, well, who's the motorcycle driver that can do that? Well, if you're new and you're coming in, you might not know who to call. You can't get the job. And then I want these people, I want this fighter to look like the actor because they're going to double the actor. Well, where is this stunt performer that looks like the actor? I don't know where to find them because mm. there is no internet yet. Yep. You know, that's the early, early days. Yes, I'm that old. So stunt coordinators would have the book, the performer book that they collect over years mm. of learning, knowing the community, growing up with the community, probably usually not probably, but usually being a performer themselves and collecting everybody's information so that when they get to that position, they're like, oh, I, I got a guy who could do a, a motorcycle jump for you and I got I know a girl that looks like this actor and she can come in. Well, that changed with internet and internet databases, mm -hmm. right? And there are companies now that have stunt databases, which, you know, not everyone can access, but if you are, you know, in the union and if you are a coordinator, then you can get access to these things. So that levels the playing field. So I don't have to have this book. Um, and but what I didn't have was the hundreds of credits, so I had to sell it a different way. And that is the way I did it. And and uh, like I said, it was met with a challenge and with some doors closing in my face and didn't work for a couple of years. It was it was it was disappointing. And I continued to perform occasionally and work my other jobs, you know, until I broke through until I got my first one and then I got my second one and then I got my third one. And it was I never stopped selling it that way uh, as physical storytelling. That's the only way I approach it. It's the only way I discuss it, mm. you know. Um, so I guess I was right. Oh, yes. It's, it's, it's a beautiful that you brought up uh, Apple's story and any kind of a founder, entrepreneurial story or any type of Trendsetter, I would say you are a perfect example of the Maverick story in that sense because... Uh... And it's a wrap. We dare you. If you are bold enough, hit subscribe, repost the rebellion and don't miss out on next week's episode. It's going to be bloody brilliant. See you on the next one.